in the smoggy, gloomy haze of the wreckage of 9-11, when rescuers and workers were facing the nearly impossible task of clearing debris and hopefully eventually restoring some kind of order. A 17-foot-tall steel object was discovered towering over the otherwise chaotic piles of twisted metal and shattered concrete and ruined lives. It was what appeared to be a perfectly formed cross, the 9-11 cross, as it is now commonly known. Now at a time when the evil that was manifested at Ground Zero seems to be multiplying in many forms throughout the world, the sign of that cross brought great hope and comfort to any who humbly saw it for what it symbolized. But for those who hate what it symbolized, there began an ever-increasing attack on not only the 9-11 cross, but all crosses in any public setting. The open hatred for the cross is at an all-time fever pitch now, as individuals and groups seek to bring legal action to remove the cross from wherever it happens to be displayed. For the cross reminds all who see it of two things. One, that sin brings death, and that the gift of God is the mercy brought by what happened at the cross. Now, sadly, because of the evil in men's hearts, the cross became a symbol of murder and cruelty to Jews and Muslims during the Crusades era. All symbols can be perverted. But as I read of the events related to the legal attacks on the cross, my mind goes back to a day early in my young music career in Nashville as a naive green kid sitting in the office of a successful record producer. I was amazed to hear him explain to me in 1976, quote, Now, we don't want you writing any more of your songs referring to the cross and the blood. You know all that kind of stuff. We we need to reach a new audience with a new music form. And that old-time religion stuff, that sort of message about crosses and blood, just turns people off nowadays. Thankfully, our recording partnership ended with the collapse of a contract and a corporate buyout by another company, and my little wounded ego left Nashville, but I couldn't forget the challenge in his words, don't write any more about the cross, the blood, that old stuff just turns people off. I watched over the coming two decades as the church slowly but surely did indeed replace the message of the cross with all kinds of various, quote, Christian options. I watched too. As the music slowly replaced any references to the cross and the blood with lyrics that might equally fit a pop romantic ballad sung by a guy for his girlfriend or vice versa, it was a nice soulful sound. Soulful, in other words, emotionally moving, catchy, and in itself not bad either as music or as poetry. But corresponding to this change in music was a change in the focus of the church at large. It would be foolish for me to attempt to offer some widespread proof of what I'm saying. I have no measured statistical factual evidence to support what I'm saying. But I can pretty well be sure that any of us who are awake are not 
willing to argue against what I'm saying. Over the past three decades, the church in the West has replaced the cross, or maybe not fully replaced it, but decorated it so as to make it much more appealing without the rough-hewn, splintery scandal the real cross always carries. Because the real cross scandalizes, separates, challenges, brings derision. The world hates the cross. So when the world begins to love the cross, you have to wonder if it's still the cross. Why, by the mid-1980s, this revised cross could be seen everywhere. It was even around the necks of many occult-practicing, fornicating, demon-worshipping rock and rollers. See, we made the cross acceptable to the world. We're reaching the world with the cross. It's like a fireman replacing his water hose with a flamethrower and and then thinking he's uh, making progress because it just doesn't take quite as much work as it used to when uh, he was trying to use water. We all got excited as the Christian message seemed to gain more and more public appeal. I was right in the middle of that excitement. This pop star or that movie actor or sports pro had become a Christian. And where they really did meet the real Jesus, the evidence of it continued to manifest in their lives and brought good fruit. But by the end of the 1980s, I began to hear from different people that I was acquainted with in show business and motion picture industry, for instance, about things like how we were making progress in in film script uh, influence. And one person in a position to know said to me, don't get too excited. I've read some of these Christian scripts. They're either so churchy, no one, including Christians, would want to watch them, or they're so compromising with evil in hopes of gaining an audience that what they have produced would not be worthy of the name of the Lord. We all applaud truly good films or songs or whatever that's both appealing and effective, And there are few, and thankfully they are increasing. But in spite of the few truly successful offerings, what really began was a slow fade. To borrow a term from Casting Crowns, it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray. Thoughts invade. Choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. The slow fade in the Western church had begun. It was not wrong for a new generation of young Christians to want to distance ourselves from what had become a hyper-religious legalistic demand for the secondary trappings of a previous generation to be held up as equal to the Torah. We were amazed at people who really, truly put Uh, certain concepts that they had grown up with in their early years as equal to Scripture, and that anybody who did anything to change any of those trappings were committing some kind of blasphemy. Piano and organ only. Had to wear a suit on Sunday. White wall haircuts. Trying to sort out the meaning of King James English. 
So in overreaction against all of that, we went too far the other way. Now somewhere in there, the enemy found some useful idiots among us. The new music of the 70s was being sung by old and young alike, and the young new converts were singing the old hymns alongside the spiritual elders. The old were being renewed by the new songs of the young, while the young were being discipled and well-grounded in ancient truths of the old hymns. The kind of true unity of heart, this sort of proclamation of ancient proven truth, this heart-healing level of intergenerational agreement, which pro produced an atmosphere of Christ-honoring worship vertically and a oneness of heart horizontally, was far too dangerous to the enemy to go unchallenged. So using the same tools he had used to successfully divide and conquer the families of the 1950s and 60s in secular culture by dividing parents from children via the birth of rock and roll, he simply reenacted in the church setting. It was too slow and subtle to be noticed for the huge danger that it was, but by the end of the 1990s, a stream of nationally circulated concepts of new worship forms sought to establish a fully secularized sound and style to support lyrics that had, for the most part, with few exceptions, replaced any reference to the person and work of Christ himself, the cross. Whenever I make reference to the cross in the remainder of this time together, understand I use the term the cross the way Paul used it, as a symbol not just of two pieces of wood used by Romans to execute people, but as the symbol that represents the entire work of redemption and the person of Christ himself. That's what I mean by the cross. Instead, we began to be hypnotized by simplistic, shallow, sing-songy lyrics that talk about how we feel about this or that, or even referring to Jesus in ways reminiscent of a sappy 1950s girly song about her boyfriend. The power of mutual agreement reinforced this on the soul level, and the entire bloodstream of the body of Christ had been contaminated with a replacement for real worship. Jesus said those who worship must worship God in spirit and in truth. The sort of God we worship will manifest in the sort of worship we offer. When God was high and holy, when the cross was the only bridge back to him, when the preciousness of the blood of Christ was the only remedy for sin, and when sin was black as could be with no remedy apart from divine mercy and grace, we sang accordingly in response to such a God. But the slow and steady imposition of a shallow, soulish, sappy sentimentalism replacing such worship had begun to poison the body of Christ. Before long, it seemed there was no place one could go anywhere on either side of the Atlantic where real worship of the living God or unified declaration of uncompromised truth sung by a unified body of believers from all age groups could be found anywhere. Then, to make an already problematic situation tragically worse, 
there was the eruption of the so-called worship wars. Churches began to split and disintegrate over arguments concerning music styles. There was wrong and sin on both sides of this. In some cases, the older people wanted no new music or music forms of any kind. They were idol worshippers, refusing to discern the presence of the Holy Spirit, but seeking only to enshrine their own soulish tastes as if that was canonical law. The youth, having failed to be correctly parented and trained to understand the meaning of hymns, or to witness a healthy model of how such hymns honor God, proclaim doctrinal truth, and enshrine that truth in the hearts of the whole family, old and young together, and instead embraced the spirit of rebellion, the same spirit of rebellion that their fathers and mothers had embraced in the 60s in the secular realm. Self-will was so often generated in worldly rock and roll, and it began to be generated in Christian rock and roll. Certainly not in every case, but in enough cases that it helped divide the body of Christ. Neither side seemed aware that such so-called worship wars had nothing to do with worship of the real God at all, but rather they worshipped their own prejudices. The so-called generation gap so easily manifested in the pagan world had now gained full entry into the mainstream of the church, even the so-called renewal church, which prided itself in being above any such divisions, became the most infected by it all. From that point, the foundation itself began to crumble. Psalm 11 verse 3 asks the vital question, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, there's an answer to that question in Isaiah 58 verse 12. It speaks of those who refuse to point the finger in rejection of others, but rather rebuilds the ancient dwellings and restores the old paths. Psalm 87 verse 1 says, Of the sons of Korah, a song. His foundation is set in the holy mountain. This refers to the unified worship of Israel as they all joined in the songs of Korah, on their way up to worship God where their foundation is established. No worship wars along the way. They all sang the Psalms of Ascent, as they were called. Grandparents, parents, teenagers, small ones, they all sang with one voice and worshiped God. Can you even picture some sort of generation gap among the people of Israel in this situation? It would take a demonic plan to construct a culture in which parents and children not only lose each other culturally, but then take that same division and infect the church with it so that even worship itself is divided and becomes a source of division, brokenness, and loss of relationship. The very opposite of what real worship should produce. Unity, love, healing and honoring God. I've referred several times to a term we might not be familiar with, and that is the term soulish. I speak of kinds of soulishness that took over the worship forms. This is an opposition to spirit. Jesus said those who worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. If we're truly interested in worshiping the real God and not just manifesting our own soulish 
desires, and tastes, then our aim will be to see to it as much as it lies within us to be worshiping God in spirit and in truth. That means that if particular styles of worship are being used that we don't particularly relate to, they don't suit our soulish tastes, we lay our tastes aside and seek to unify our hearts with whatever we are able to that is capable of bearing worship toward God. It takes humility and patience, even self-sacrifice, to do that. If the art form being used is particularly grating to us, then it'll take a lot more humility for us to, to do what I'm saying. I've had a hard time with this. I think I've come much closer to what pleases God in it, but, but it's taken a while. Is that not what matters here, pleasing God? Are we really going to allow ourselves to reject our older or younger brother or sister over our own personal musical tastes being ignored? Or is the presence of God and the reality of his love for each other that he commanded us to manifest, is that not more important to focus on? Now, music is a supernatural thing and can be used for either good or evil. Why that is so is a fascinating subject in itself, but the fact that it is so should hardly have to be proven. The capacity of the human psyche to be strongly influenced by music is proven all around us. How many of us have learned some long, boring, rote piece of memorized uh, curriculum by singing it? This is how the Jews learned to memorize the Torah. If we sing something, we remember it with a part of the brain that's stronger than mere rote memory. Also, when we sing together, the, the cumulative power of such human energy provides a unified platform that is greater than its individual parts. This is why corporate singing in a right heart on the same focus together on the same page, is so important. Psalm 22 speaks of the praises of Israel forms, form, forming a location where God literally descends and sits enthroned upon the praises of Israel. I've seen this very spiritual phenomena counterfeited in rock concerts, where the unified focus of the many human psyches called down principalities and powers who seek to mimic the real and siphon off a bastardized form of pseudo-worship from the rockers. Now, considering all these facts, imagine what it would be like if you, your children, your grandchildren, friends, black sheep uncle, crazy neighbor, were all together around your piano and sitting with you, or, or sitting with you as you play your guitar or whatever, and everyone, no matter the age or musical preference, began to enter into singing. Not just singing, but singing words that have eternal energy in them. Words that are the very word of the living God put in lyrics. What kind of power would be unleashed for all kinds of good to be set in motion in such a setting? Unified hearts singing from the core of your being in full agreement in 
affirming eternal truth woven into the lyrics that can soothe and comfort or convict and correct or exalt and worship. Can you picture what I'm trying to help us see here? Psalm 133, how good, how blessed it is when God's people are gathered together in unity. It's like the anointing oil that ran down Aaron's beard and covered his entire garment. There the Lord commands the blessing. Why? In what way is it like oil pouring down Aaron's beard and covering his garments? Because the anointing comes where there is unified hearts in one accord. God loves it so much that it is there he commands blessing. Do you see why this was a vitally strategic target for the enemy to disrupt and, if possible, destroy? At our conference in August every year in Black Mountain, which we've held for over 20 years now, people of all ages, all tastes, and church backgrounds have come from all over. Often some will return just to be in the worship, they say. We have no band. I'm no great musician. There are no lights or fog machines. Mary and I just know how to listen to God and draw from the many wells of ancient and modern and contemporary music. We know that music itself is not the same as worship, but music, because of its supernatural nature, has the greatest of all elements within it to provide the best track for real worship to run on. So we carefully listen for the Holy Spirit to guide us in choosing the right hymns, the right songs, the right choruses, that when woven together by him, create an atmosphere in which the presence of God is welcomed and holiness and worship and unity and human affection can easily breathe and grow and manifest in that atmosphere. And in that kind of atmosphere, healings happen. I'm not speaking of atmosphere as some manipulated set of lights and sounds to move the human soul. No, I mean by atmosphere of what Psalm 133 just said, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity there the Lord can command blessing, and he does year after year. I can't make that happen. Linda Shazo, who joins us each year to add her voice and wisdom and leading worship, can't make it happen. We just provide the place and lead with the music and lyrics that affirm the truth, and the Holy Spirit manifests himself in that truth. He's delighted to do it. He descends upon it with signs following. Mary and I do this with our children and our grandchildren. We often sing the blessing over the food on Sundays together. Or sometimes I'll have the lyrics of an old hymn printed out and sitting at each place where, well, the places where the kids can read. Even if they don't know the song, by experiencing it as music, as a song around the table in the spirit of love and welcome that is what the table is about it becomes not only the table of the lord but the music writes itself on the tablets of their brain and heart 
as an unforgettable memory the Holy Spirit will draw upon for um, years to come and speak to them for, for the rest of their lives. The world uses these forms of seduction, propaganda, and lies every day, and most of us just sit and let it happen. I've learned after dealing with teenagers for years that it's much more effective for long-term good if we put in the good rather than trying to overprotect them from the bad. Now, yes, we need to obviously watch after what they watch and listen to, but you and I know there's no way to monitor it all, all the time. It's much more effective for long-term good if we can insulate them from within with good rather than try to isolate them from without. Now, those of you hearing me who have teens or young adults are thinking how you might force-feed them somehow. Just stop and take a breath and ask the Lord for creative ways to do it. It doesn't have to, to uh, always be done well. I mean, it doesn't have to be done well. My kids don't sing very loud. I don't care. We provide the platform for the music and the lyrics and the atmosphere of love, which honors the Lord to be present, and then we trust the Holy Spirit to do the rest. Should the day come in years to come that they should stray or fall, even if, Lord forbid, they should wreck their lives in some way like I did, can you imagine what it is then like for them facing the ruin sin brings? Maybe sitting alone in some forlorn place, wondering if there's any hope for them now. And then from somewhere deep inside that they didn't even know was there comes the voice of hope and mercy rising up from out of their own memory from a place they didn't know they even paid attention to at the time. Now, years and tears later, when they need it most and are now old enough and sad enough to understand and deeply appreciate what to them at the time was just some old song, comes the melody that carries words that when forced upon them, that night years ago, sitting around the table or gathered at the piano or standing bored in a song service or listening to parents as they sing to embarrassed and bored children. It got in anyway and waited for the moment when the Holy Spirit could sing them again, this time to a willing and eager listener. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that can pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. New every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Great is your faithfulness. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. 
and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free for all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of my guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. My sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me, and that you bid me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me with his arms in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are ten thousand charms. Come, you sinner, poor and needy, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness like the flood. When the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. And in their loneliness and shame, suddenly they're not alone. Angels and archangels and all the company of heaven the saints who wrote those lyrics and millions more who sung them or sung songs like them are all suddenly present with them in their awakening hour. What was a burden of shame in a moment like that then becomes an open door of welcome. The valley of trouble becomes a door of hope. It's not overstated to say that their fall has possibly actually become their rescue. Because till they faced their deep brokenness, those old words were just boring old hymns we used to sing at Grandma's house or in church or around the table some Sundays. No, now, in this moment, they've become a lifeline of hope and salvation. I know I'm weaving a beautiful story, make-believe story. But for me, it really happened. And for many I know, it did too. So why not try to find opportunities to pave the way for this kind of grace to flow into your children, your families, your friends, by making a few awkward but effective moments for these truths to be set in place. I know what it's like. You say, I'm going to do this. I, I, I'm going to do this. I can do this. And then you try to do it. 
and nobody's interested, nobody responds, nobody. You just have to, you have to find creative, Holy Spirit engineered ways to do it. Not manipulative, but at the same time, you can't wait for it to just fall on you from the, the sky either. Find ways to sing of the cross, the shed blood, the unsurpassed greatness of the one who gave himself on that cross. Try to sing together. Try to find ways to gather your entire family of all ages, if possible, into as much as you can of, of what I'm describing. Don't be discouraged if it's difficult, because it will be. Remember, there's an enemy who has fought hard to break this apart and works to keep it scattered. But when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against it. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And let me just say that what I'm describing here may not even be possible until the Holy Spirit brings a deep, deep work of repentance on the church which includes your family. Because it's only, it's only broken people who are humbled enough by their own need to sing these songs and celebrate these truths properly. See, by seeking to remove the centrality of the cross and all that means, the enemy seeks to destroy the very spinal cord that makes the body the body. That which holds us together, that which is the primary defining thing. So for many of us, what has become the primary defining thing is whether we like the same music or not, or whether we wear our hair the same way, or whether we have secondary interests. See, when secondary interests become the measuring stick for reality, we are idol worshipers. Whatever is secondary is an idol. It doesn't have to be an idol as long as it's secondary. But when secondary becomes primary, secondary becomes an idol, and primary disappears. And so we have all kinds of splinter groups. The body of Christ is so askew. You think, how can John 17 ever come to pass? The prayer of Jesus when he prayed that, that we all might be one even as Jesus and the Father are one so that the world will know. Well, that prayer will happen. I'm, I'm waiting now and watching for what events may occur that will help move us in that direction. But I say this humbly. I don't mean it to sound arrogant. Mary and I can be in a small group or in a cathedral. It doesn't matter what the outer shell of tradition might be as long as the spinal cord of the cross and all that means is present. The sense of belonging to each other is rooted only in the sense of our common life coming from that central cord. The reason the body of Christ seems so askew today is there's no longer this common life. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one loaf, one cup. The more the spirit of the world obscures the cross and all that means and seeks to emphasize whatever various human identities we may have, whether it's denominationalism, nationalism, race, music style preferences, age, whatever, we become divided and broken and sick. 
How is it that I can enter a place I've never been and feel totally at home there, whether I know the people or not, or the songs they sing or not, or even the language? It's because the common life we share from the central core, the cross and all that means, is the dominating feature of our life, not the secondary issues I just listed. For many of you who hear this message, you have felt alone, ousted, homeless, exiled, desolate, whatever other word you might use to express the feeling of isolation and loneliness spiritually. You tell me that at times you go to church hoping for some moment in which this reality you used to know is present again. You question whether it's just you. You're the problem. You've become too critical, and if you would just humble yourself and shut up and quit complaining and lay aside your prejudices and just enter into the spirit of things, you'll feel again the sense of togetherness and belonging that you so long for. Now, for some, that may be true. I mean, I don't know your heart. For some, you may be self-exiled due to wrong attitudes, but I know that's not the whole story, not by a long shot. No, what is aching so deep inside in some of us has nothing to do with sentimental desires for the return of some good old days or for people to acquiesce to our particular personal tastes in music or whatever. I don't wish everyone would suddenly begin playing second chapter of Acts or or love song recordings and wearing bell bottoms and holding prayer meetings in the back of a cherry red flower power good times van. Dull as I am, I know better than to think we could just reenact outwardly some church formalism which once had a positive place in our culture and that suddenly, poof, we'd be whisked away by magic to the restored sense of closeness and belonging that we knew then. No. For all these trappings were the secondary outflow of the primary source, the cross, and all that means, was in place in us, and we were in it. And out from our deep and humble gratitude to God for his unspeakable gift, out from the sense of overflowing thanksgiving for sins forgiven, there poured songs And we all related to the songs, not because we necessarily liked them or the style of them, but we were all moved into unity by them and with them because they celebrated the cross and all that means. So old and young, black and white, hippie and redneck, all of us in one spirit and with one voice took our place in Christ and beside one another and joined with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven as we sang of the blood and the cross and the Savior. And our gratitude was great because to whom is forgiven much, they love much. We who had been forgiven so much felt the love all around us because we were immersed not in the music or the style. Nobody focused on that. We felt the love and the presence because we were immersed in the meaning and the meaning produced the music. The style was merely the vehicle for something far greater than the mere music. Everyone sang the same lyrics because everyone had their own personal experience 
of what the lyrics pointed to. So we all pointed together to the cross and all that means. We came early and stayed late. I mean, stayed really late, ridiculously late. No one wanted to leave because it made no sense to want to go anywhere else. When life himself is present here now with us, we hugged each other like drunks at a party. Strangers felt it and, and fell into it. Childlike, simple testimonies of the cross and all that means were shared and visitors came running to the cross and began their own part of the never-ending story. How subtle is the seductive pull that slowly turns us away from the primary and gets us focused on the secondary? Then how easy it is for the secondary to be divided into various versions and tastes. Then before anyone sees it, the central core of why we gather, why we sing, why we love each other is lost in a sense of opinion and preference and division and personalities. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Peter. The place of the primary and the secondary get reversed. We fight and argue and split over all the secondary things we have made primary, all the while claiming that we're doing it to ensure the proper place of the primary. But the real presence fades away. The childlike, humble gratitude of simple celebration of Jesus and of each other is swallowed up by doing church right. Well, I'm reminiscing. Am I romanticizing too? Painting a perfect picture of that which was not perfect? No, I'm fully aware as I describe these days, these early days of my own Christian experience, that not only were things not perfect, we were just beginning to deal with our own inner pain and brokenness and confusion. But it's because we were rooted in the cross and all that means that we endured the cleansing process and still endure it today. As a spiritual parent and as a teacher, it's especially painful for me when I realize how absolutely ignorant most people are now of things that I learned before I was 20 years old. Not because I'm smart, not because I'm some especially blessed person or a gifted person. I was a especially blessed person by the fact that I had good teachers who helped me learn, but I wasn't smart. I can prove that if you don't believe it, but I believe you probably believe me. No, we just, we just had been, we had been drawn by the Holy Spirit to the, to the cross, and we wanted to, we wanted to understand, we wanted to learn, we wanted to know, and we, we were gathered in the name of Jesus around teachers who pointed us to Him. And we're so full of the revelation of what they were saying to us that sometimes in the middle of teaching, they would just have to stop and, and worship. And then we just follow them right on into the presence of the Lord. And, you know, I, I'm not romanticizing these days. They were agonizing days in many ways. But the, 
Sometimes I focus more on the pain and the dark than I do on the glory. Because the only reason I was able to have hope in the pain and the dark was because I'd seen the glory in the cross. Now we've come full circle in this hour together. I began with the picture in 9-11, the wreckage of the horror of that event. And there in the middle of it is this cross. To those who hate the cross, it's just a coincidence that irritates them. But to the childish and the foolish and the needy, the stupid rest of us who aren't so smart, aren't so erudite, we see standing in the midst of the worst that man can do, the greatest symbol of what God has done through the worst man can do. The cross is the only response to evil. It's the only place where evil can be overcome and the fruit of evil be cleansed away and the results of evil be healed. And so in this generation, as we stand now at the end of a long period of church disintegration in the Western world, while while the, the body of Christ has grown by leaps and bounds in the third world, we start having to take account of ourselves and recognize that we, in our spiritual arrogance, have become, in our own minds, rich and increased with goods and having need of nothing and don't know that in reality we are miserable and wretched and poor and blind and naked. That puts us in a position of hope because once we recognize our real condition, by the grace of God, maybe we can begin to see the cross again. Right now, uh, there's a great move of the Holy Spirit taking place in downtown New York City of all places. Not too far from the, the place where the 9-11 cross stands, it's Times Square Church. At Times Square Church, over the last several weeks, there have been uh, hundreds and hundreds of people, street people, prostitutes, pimps, homosexuals, uh, drug addicts, and just run-of-the-mill sinners who have come to the cross at uh, Times Square Church. This, to me, is a sign, among other signs, of what the Spirit of the Lord is wanting to bring forth in the whole body of Christ. Just as 9-11 is a symbol of what's upon the world, and the cross appeared in the midst of 9-11 as a symbol of hope, so what's happening at Times Square Church, to me, is another sign of what God intends to do and wants to do in the whole church throughout the whole uh, Western world. But it's going to take the simple, childlike humility of returning to the message that has been obscured and twisted and ignored and even hated among people who claim to know the Lord. 
And as Paul said to the Philippians, I say this even with tears. There are some among you who claim to be followers of Jesus who are enemies of the cross, whose God is their appetites and whose mind is on this present evil world. Their affections are toward the world, not in the sense of loving the world toward Jesus, but in the sense of loving the world instead of Jesus. Before we start preaching this to other people, we have to have a thorough examination of our own hearts. Where, where are we in this whole question? For months, I've been wrestling with it in my own life. I really, lately, have found myself not wanting to speak publicly. I've not had too many opportunities lately to do that anyway, but I've not really wanted it when, when they come, not because I don't love the people, but because there's something in me right now that's not interested in standing up and saying things to anybody about what they ought to be doing. Uh, I'm, I'm much more comfortable on my face in the in the presence of the Lord asking him to search me and purge from me anything that would hinder his access to using me any way he wants to. And I'm getting that from lots of, of leaders. I get that same message. I get letters and emails and phone calls of leaders that I've known over the years who say, you know, this is a, a time of waiting. We're we're in a we're in a in between time. It's not a it's not a passive in between waiting time. It's not an inactive one. It's not uh, one where there's no activity. There's lots of activity, but the activity is the dealings of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of these leaders. And every one of them that I've spoken to have made reference to the sense of of uh, the cleansing from false messages which weren't false as long as they were secondary but now have become false and idolatrous because they have tried to be presented as primary. There's only one primary message the cross and all that means. Now in the few minutes that we have left (laughs) I'm obviously not going to try to explain to you the cross, and all that means. But I do want to explain what I mean by the phrase, the cross and all that means. Because what Paul was communicating when he used that term, anytime he spoke of the cross, he understood, and his listeners and readers understood, he was speaking a coded language, an open coded language, that the whole church understood. And the cross is obviously not just referring to the cross. It's referring to all of the work of redemption that was culminated in the cross. So quickly, let me just offer you a few of the items that relate to that subject. Obviously, it's a short list. The first thing that is understood by the cross was that God is unapproachably holy, that he is beyond knowing apart from his own self-revelation, and that man's sin has separated him from God in a, 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 a chasm of 
of uh, proportions that sinful man can't comprehend. Some have said correctly, in this culture, we have brought God down too low and we have raised ourselves up too high, thinking that we could bridge that gap a little bit. Well, the second thing that the cross represents is that the gap between a holy God and sinful man is unbridgeable on man's side. So, third, the gap can only be bridged from God's side. Fourth, God himself came in the form of a man in order to bridge that gap. Number five, the cross is the place where God, as man, takes upon himself all of the corruption of sin, all of the darkness of spiritual warfare and evil in the universe, not just on the earth, but in the entire universe, according to the book of Hebrews and other places. And that at his death, he nullified the sentence of death against mankind, satisfied the courts of eternal justice, broke the power of demonic strongholds, liberated man legally from Satan's legal control of him, and set in motion a new creation at his resurrection. His ascension was the place of his re-enthronement on the throne of God as God and man in one, never to be separated again. And then he poured out his Holy Spirit into us, setting in motion in us the same process of complete redemption and restoration, which will culminate in our own resurrection from the dead and eventually a new heaven and a new earth. All of that is gathered up in the term, the cross. I only want to take a moment to speak to the first point, because obviously all of these points would take hours to even examine uh, in a, a, a shallow way. The first thing I think that is most desperately needed is not only first because it's first in the list, but it's first because it's first in, in, in importance. We don't embrace the cross with humility and gratitude because we don't see our sin. And we don't see our sin because we don't have a vision of the holiness of God. It is, it is the holiness of God that shines the light on the darkness of our rebellion. I'm recently involved in working with a person who has come through some terrible misdeeds in in her life. She has she has done some really terrible things to people. One of the most difficult things I've had to deal with in relating to her is helping her see the magnitude of the evil she has perpetrated against other people. The religiously rooted self-defense mechanisms she has developed from churchy concepts, religious concepts, is terrifying. And it's the grace of God that is stripping her of those self-defense mechanisms. And I mean, stripping her down to the bare naked roots 
of her sinfulness. John says in John chapter 1, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Grace before truth, because if we got truth without grace, we'd all commit suicide. That's the truth. So God is pouring grace upon her, like I quoted to you before. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." then grace my fears relieved. We want God to relieve our fears before we ever have them awakened in us. Grace comes to awaken us and then relieve us of the burden of what we've been awakened to. The reason we have so much brokenness in the church, I went into this in hours of teaching in a series called Counterfeit Conversion. The reason the church is so impotent, the reason the church is so weak, the reason the church is so without power and so ineffective in the world, and the world hates the church because of its hypocrisy and impotence. But Jesus said when, when we lose our salt, we lose our, our saltiness, we are good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of men. And the church is trodden under the foot of men today because we have lost our salt. And we've lost our salt because we've lost our vision of the holiness of God, which means we've lost our understanding of our own sinful need, which means we don't thank God with every fiber of our being for the cross and all that means. And so I believe an awakening is, is upon us. I believe we're, we're beginning to see it. I see it in certain places, but not nearly to the degree it's going to take. But John chapter 17, I, I hang on to it with all my heart. Jesus prayed that we would all be one, even as he and the Father are one, so that the world will know that we are his that prayer has to come to pass, so whatever it takes to bring us to that place, I, I welcome it, I cry out for it. God, God helping us, we will become salt and light again in the earth. And uh, may God hasten the day. Well, our, our time is up. Thank you for listening. God bless you all. We love you and uh, can't tell you how much we appreciate you.